Hello, welcome to the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry podcast series, where we discuss all things related to CL psychiatry, important clinical updates, interviews with leaders in the field, and new CL psychiatry research. I'm your host, Dr. Sahil Manjal, a CL psychiatrist at Wake Forest School of Medicine and the chair of ACLP Online Education Subcommittee. We will have Dr. James Bourgeois and Dr. Kathleen Sheehan with us to talk about decision-making capacity in the medical setting. They wrote the APA resource document titled Decisional Capacity Determinations in Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, a Guide for the General Psychiatrist back in 2019. Drs. Bourgeois and Dr. Sheehan, can you please do a quick introduction of yourself? Yes, hello. I'm Jim Bourgeois. I'm Vice Chair of Hospital Psychiatry Services at University of California Davis Medical Center in Sacramento. I'm a former chair of psychiatry at Baylor Scott and White Memorial Medical Center near Austin, Texas. And prior to that, I was vice chair at the University of California, San Francisco and at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. I've been a member of ACLP since 2000 and I'm board certified in consultation liaison psychiatry since 2005. Thanks so much for inviting us. I'm a clinician investigator at Toronto General Hospital, which is part of University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Clinically, I work on our general and transplant consultation liaison services, as well as our inpatient psychiatry unit. I'm an associate professor in the University of Toronto Department of Psychiatry, and I'm also director of our residency programs clinician scholar program. Thank you for those introductions. Now let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about what is decision-making capacity as it relates to medical decision-making? Decisional capacity refers to the patient's ability to make decisions about medical care and self-determination. Broadly speaking, there are two types of decisional capacity. The first relates to informed consent for specific clinical intervention. Patients with varying degrees of cognitive impairment and other manifestations of psychiatric illness may be capable of informed consent for some less complex decisions, such as appointing a surrogate decision maker or consent to straightforward procedures, but unable to make more complex decisions, such as regarding very complex surgical procedures or participation in clinical research. This is sometimes referred to as differential capacity. The second type is also called dispositional capacity and does not refer to medical decisions per se, but rather to the ability to manage self-care, housing, finances, and other social matters. Thank you for that information. What I also want to highlight to our listeners is that capacity can be determined by any physician, uh, not necessarily by a psychiatrist. Uh, It is also situation, decision, and time-specific. It can vary over the clinical course, and it's context-dependent. If you change any variables in the context, it can change your determination of the capacity, as in the end, it is a clinical judgment. Uh, Moving along, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the different frameworks we have on how to assess decision-making capacity, talking about the Applebaum, Grisso, and the sliding scale? Yeah, the Applebaum and Grisso framework refers to informed consent. Regarding a proposed intervention, medical or surgical, the patient must represent, demonstrate four elements, understanding, appreciation, rationality of decision-making, and communication of a consistent choice. Application of these elements additionally requires that the patient understands 
the risk, benefits, side effects of treatment refusal as pertains to the natural history of their illness. Dr. Sheehan, uh, can you share a situation which highlights the Applebaum Rizzo criteria? Sure. So this is in a specific case, but it's emblematic on what we often see on our CL service. So we may be consulted on an internal medicine patient with a pre-existing psychotic disorder who now has a severe pneumonia and requires IV antibiotics for treatment. Often these patients will have the capacity to understand information about their condition. So they may understand that they have an infection and this is impacting their breathing and that it may be become more severe without treatment. And they're often able to express a choice whether they want treatment for this or not. However, in those with psychotic disorders, their actual delusional beliefs may interfere with the appreciation and reasoning factors outlined by Applebaum and Grisso. So someone who's really paranoid, maybe they would believe that they'll be harmed by treatment because it's poisoned by someone else. They may believe that they'll be safer by not being treated because of risk of harm from others. And so this would be considered an issue with appreciation. Another person who has delusions of grandiosity, they may feel that the antibiotics are not needed because they'll be protected by a special power. And so, again, this would be considered an issue with reasoning. Applebaum and Grisso's seminal paper includes some great questions to explore appreciation, such as what is treatment likely to do for you? What do you believe will happen if you are not being treated? And reasoning, how did you decide to accept or reject the treatment? What makes your choice better than others? Uh, that is indeed a great paper. I recommend this uh, paper to all our trainees that rotate through our console service. Now, coming back to sliding scale. The sliding scale construct relates to the relative risks of proposed intervention. A patient would have to demonstrate very clearly high-level decision capacity to refuse a low-risk procedure that would offer significant benefit, as opposed to refusing a high-risk procedure of lower clinical benefit. Can you share a situation which highlights the sliding scale? Definitely. So people make choices in hospitals every day, but the consequences of these decisions really vary. So when a patient declines to eat the oatmeal on their breakfast tray, most of the time no one is calling for a physician to assess capacity to see if a patient is capable to refuse their oatmeal because the risk of a severely negative outcome is pretty low. An intermediate case might be the patient who is severely dehydrated and declines IV fluids, which are recommended by the medical team. If they agree to drink fluids and have their blood work rechecked, most teams probably wouldn't question their capacity because they seem to understand the problem and the range of possible treatment options, even if they're not choosing the one that the medical team would recommend. However, if a patient needs life-saving and urgent dialysis or a limb-saving urgent surgical intervention and decline, this is probably going to activate concerns about a patient's capacity because they're declining something that has substantial negative outcome, and there may be limited other treatment options available to them, and especially limited other treatment options with these life-saving potential. Uh, thank you for taking us through those uh, examples. Um, it does help simplify things for us. What are the common scenarios where the issue of capacity comes up in the general hospital setting? Uh, there are several common ones. Patients who request against medical advice or AMA discharge often have their decisional capacity questioned as opposed to decisional capacity for specific medical surgical intervention. 
Interestingly, AMA discharge requests are often grounded in social problems. Examples are need to return to work, desire to care for a sick family member, and or communication breakdown with medical teams and the patient, as opposed to manifestation of psychiatric illness per se. Patients who refuse procedures, especially if they cannot clearly explain this to medical teams, frequently generate a decisional capacity determination request. And interestingly, patients who go along with recommendations, thus being less disruptive to care, are less likely to have the decisional capacity questioned by the home medical teams. It is uh, important to keep in mind just because someone is agreeing with the procedure does not necessarily mean they have capacity. Now, let's talk about patients with neurocognitive disorders. Uh, Patients with a history or current manifestations of neurocognitive disorders, dementia syndromes, delirium, most often manifest impaired decisional capacity compared to other types of psychiatric illness. That makes sense. What about patients uh, who are involuntary committed? Patients who are on psychiatric commitment orders often have their decisional capacity questioned by home teams, but it should be emphasized that the presence of a psychiatric commitment order does not per se preclude intact decisional capacity. In these patients, decisional capacity must be separately assessed. Mm -hmm. I just also want to add in here that these capacity evaluations typically do come into play when there are abrupt mental status changes, irrational behavior on part of the patient, also decisions that are high risk with significant differences in risk and benefits and uh, not being consistent with the previous decisions of the patient. Moving along here, can you take us through how you would go about doing a capacity evaluation? And just want to put in a plug here about the APA resource document that you came up with uh, kind of uh, goes through a lot of details what we're talking about here. Thank you. I would start by saying it's important not to, quote, just answer the capacity question, unquote, but to complete a comprehensive psychiatric consultation. As neurocognitive disorders are the psychiatric illness group that most commonly results in impaired decision capacity. Formal cognitive assessment, example, the MOCA or similar standardized cognitive assessment, uh, is advisable. Similarly, the ascertainment of an illness that is amenable to treatment should be specified because treatment could thus improve decisional capacity. It's important to determine if the consult question pertains to informed consent for a specific procedure or dispositional capacity or both. For informed consent question, consultant needs to know the proposed intervention and the risks, benefits, side effects, as well as the patient's underlying condition. Consultation report should list relevant diagnoses, proposed interventions, clear statement regarding decisional capacity, and in the case of informed consent questions, the four Applebaum and Grissor elements should be specified. Sometimes it will be preferable to have the primary teams in the room with you while you're doing these evaluations because they know the proposed intervention, the risk, side effects, the most and certainly can answer those questions uh, if the patient brings up any questions. Moving to the next question here, what are the challenges faced by clinicians when doing these uh, sort of capacity evaluations? Well, I think one of the main things is the engagement with the patient because sometimes people don't want to engage in an assessment or they're not able to because they're too ill to participate. We really need to think about what are barriers to communication. Is there a language barrier or a sensory barrier to communication that interferes with the evaluation in these areas? 
And sometimes our referring medical teams may have a poor understanding of the elements of decisional capacity. So when their question to us as a consulting service, they might conflate informed consent and decisional capacity. Sometimes there's a request to make a determination of decisional capacity for all medical interventions when this actually needs to be specific to treatment decision being made. And also patient conditions may rapidly change or fluctuate. And we talked a little bit about that already, but this is really common in conditions like delirium where we may see people be more confused at certain times of the day and more clear that at others. And so you really need repeated capacity assessment to make a determination of what is stable in their decision making. Right. It's uh, very important to highlight here again that capacity is a decision and uh, time specific. So, you know, in, in situations where things fluctuate, there is a need for a repeated capacity evaluation down the road. Any words about the decision-making capacity instruments that are available and described in the literature? Yes. Uh, the MacArthur instrument formalizes the decisional capacity criteria as illustrated in the Applebaum-Grisso formulation. This has been used in research on decisional capacity, but is relatively rarely used in clinical practice per se. Thus, a formal decisional capacity instrument is not considered the usual standard of care in performing decisional capacity assessment. What to do if the patient uh, refuses to engage in a capacity evaluation? Well, the patient's refusal is communicated to the other medical team, as with any other consultation that's refused. Where And one would offer to return at another time. In the meantime, pending completing the consultation, the home medical team's often preliminary decisional capacity determination remains in force until the consultant can complete his or her consultation. Mm -hmm. Also, if the patient's uh, refusal to engage is due to a lack of trust in the clinician or the medical system, using an approach to build trust and respect address uh, interpersonal communication, better understand uh, the values and preferences uh, of the patient, and aligning the patient's goals to ours can sometimes be helpful. Any tips on documentation once you do finish your capacity evaluation, how to document that in the chart? Yes, important to emphasize this. Thanks for raising it. We address this in length, at length in our uh, resource document. But some of the relevant elements to emphasize Specify the type of consent question. Is it informed consent versus disposition or is it both? Specify the proposed medical surgical intervention discussed. Document the full mental status exam, including the cognitive exam. Document, if relevant, any psychiatric illnesses and proposed interventions. In the case of dispositional capacity, address the use of other consultants, such as occupational therapy and social work, who can ascertain the patient's function. And finally, comment on conditions with fluctuating decisional capacity. Most important would be traumatic brain injury and delirium, and the associated need to reassess these illnesses over time because decisional capacity may fluctuate accordingly. Uh, thanks for these tips. So certainly, you know, capacity evaluation is just more than just talking about the four Applebaum resource criteria, and you really need a thorough psychiatric assessment in majority of these cases. What are the next steps? once it's decided that the patient lacks decision-making capacity? Well, the most important first step is obviously to communicate that because then the home medical team, often with assistance of social work and other support structures, must engage a surrogate decision-maker to address the informed consent need 
often the consent individual is not available local. It's certainly completely appropriate to do this by phone or by Zoom or other media as long as you document what you're doing. Yeah, identifying surrogate decision maker is very important uh, once you decide the patient uh, lacks capacity and they're usually, you know, people are next of kin. What if there's no surrogate decision maker that you can identify? I think this is where it's really essential that we know the law in your own jurisdiction. So the process for determining a surrogate a substitute decision maker often differs from country to country, state to state, in Canada, province to province. So CL psychiatrists often need to help medical and surgical teams navigate this complexity. We sometimes work with legal issues much more than our colleagues, including these issues like incapacity that we're talking about today and involuntary detention. It's certainly important to be familiar with the standards uh, in your jurisdiction to identify next of kin and the process for guardianship, especially on unprefended patients where uh, no next of kin can be identified. Now let's talk about a common you know, question that comes up by the medical teams, uh, kind of the differences between capacity and competence. Can you talk about that? So this may be one of those great examples where jurisdiction really matters. In Ontario, where I work, we only deal with capacity issues. Right. The same thing uh, here in the U.S. Uh, actually, competence is a legal term, which is determined by a court of law. And uh, it is a legal judgment, which kind of pertains to that to make informed decisions regarding self and property. And if declared incompetent, a guardian is assigned. But we as physicians, we can make recommendations only. And it is up to a court of law to be the adjudicator of uh, if somebody is a competent individual or not. And it's important to note that it is presumed, uh, somebody is presumed to be competent until approved otherwise. Moving along here, uh, what are the common misconceptions when it comes to assessing decision-making capacity? Well, there were several. The first common misconception is that the initial decisional capacity determination is enduring when in fact it is time limited. Second is that capacity determinations are for a specific intervention and not for, quote, all medical interventions. Third, important emphasizes that not all psychiatric illness impair decisional capacity. The literature shows that neurocognitive disorders, more so than psychotic disorders, more so than depressive disorders, more so than anxiety disorders, impair differential capacity differentially. In all cases, even being guided by that, the individual patient must be evaluated specifically. It's uh, indeed very important, uh, as some of the medical providers may think just by having a psychiatric condition means that uh, the person lacks capacity, and that is certainly not the case. I also want to add a reference of a paper by uh, Ganzini et al., and we can put a reference to that paper in the show notes uh, that kind of goes into a lot more details about the common misconceptions that exist about uh, decision-making capacity. Finally, coming back to talk a little bit about the concept of dispositional capacity and uh, the differences that exist in making those assessments uh, compared to the standard capacity questions. Well, the main point here is that um, dispositional capacity is not per se about medical care, but rather about the acquisition and management of social resources, living independently, getting food, you know, things of that sort. Also, it's important to emphasize that dispositional capacity is not really about the moment, but it's about the future. It's a prediction of future decision-making, how the patient is going to do, 
as opposed to one current decision in the present, which of course is what informed consent is all about. Lastly, for dispositional capacity determinations, I advocate regular use of other consultants. Examples, physical therapy, occupational therapy, social work, or sort of dynamic assessments of the patient's performance. This is important, but whereas these other consultants are not needed for informed consent decisional capacity assessments. Thank you for that information. Now let's wrap things up. Uh, Dr. Bourgeois, Dr. Sheehan, anything else you want to add to our discussion here? I think this is such an important topic. I think this is one of the, you know, so-called bread and butter things that CL psychiatrists get involved with. I think it's both the C and the L of CL psychiatry where we do consultations and work with patients in assisting with these decisions. And we also do a lot of liaison work in supporting our colleagues and teaching other learners and other disciplines about the things that go into uh, considering capacity assessments. And like we started talking about, any physician can do this. Mm -hmm. We have certain expertise when um, capacity is questioned, but I think it's a great example of where CL psychiatrists can play a big role in the hospital and make a difference to the care of patients. I would further emphasize this is a common problem. Uh, Some years ago in my service at Davis, we tabulated the demand for uh, capacity determinations. It was actually one-sixth of all psychiatric consultation requests were solely for decisional capacity. Very, very well highlighted. I mean, again, this is, this is the bread and butter. And the fun thing about capacity is it can be the easiest and the hardest thing you'll ever do if you change the context a little bit. And that's what made these uh, a lot of fun. And uh, in the end, it comes down to the clinical judgment. And uh, thank you so much for adding your expertise and coming on the podcast. This was a fascinating discussion. And again, want to put put a plug in again for the APA resource document that uh, the two of you co-authored. It's, it's an amazing resource and people should definitely check it out. Again, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, see you all next time. Thank you. Good to see you again. Thank you for tuning into the ACLP podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes.